Good morning. Follow along with me as I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Amen. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, I am particularly happy that the year, the new year has begun and that the old year is in the rearview mirror. I'm glad 2019 is done. I've, I've buried that sucker. It's, it's, it's six feet under in my mind. Um, one thing that we started doing here at Anthem a couple years ago that I think is probably a good thing, and we'll do it until I otherwise figure out that it's not a good thing, uh, we theme up our year. Here, and so a couple years ago in 2018, the theme was the year of Ur, E-R, the year of Ur. So the whole goal of 2018 was for us to develop a deeper faith, to practice a richer theology, for us to have a wider impact in our community, for us to have truer relationships with fellow brothers and sisters, and for us to do the greater things that God has called us to do. So it was all about er. How can there be more er in my life? And last year, the theme was new mercies. Like everybody knows that really well by now. So as, as we sit throughout the year, like this day that we're now living in right now is a brand new day in that it's, it's a new invention. This day has never existed before. It's a brand new invention, and it comes to us with brand new mercies just for this day. So Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So before God created the universe, he personally hand-selected these unique blessings just for you for today. Before you were born, God set aside these unique gifts just for you to enjoy on this day, to get you through this day. So eternity go, whenever that was, God personally set them aside. He wrote your name on it. He put it in inventory. Today, those new mercies arrive with free shipping. Just today. And so we spent the entire year helping, trying to grow in this idea that God is the God of new mercies. And we should trust and believe that God is the God of new mercies and that he does provide everything that we need each and every day. And then to trust that what he does give us each day is precisely what we need and that it is good and that it is right. So here's 2020. Time for a new theme. I should have let Joseph stay up here just to have a drum roll. So this is a bit anticlimactic. So here's the theme for the year. Soli Deo Gloria. So Johann Sebastian Bach 
brilliant musical genius devoted his life to the art and the science of music. He just devoted his life to composing like beautiful musical masterpieces and none of what he did did he ever do for his own glory. Everything that he did, every note that he scored into a sheet of music, every composition, every lyric, every song, everything was for the glory of of God. So what he would do on these manuscripts, these sheets of music that laid before him, before he wrote the first note or anything on there, at the bottom of each page, he would write S-D-G, which stood for the Latin phrase soli deo gloria. Soli means alone. Deo means God. Gloria means glory. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And so he would write those three little letters on every manuscript, S-D-G, to remind himself and anyone that would look at his sheet music that everything is for the glory of God and for the glory of God alone. So what we did throughout 2019 is that I would get up here to start a sermon, and I would say, good morning. It's a good day. It's a good day because it's a new day, and a new day means new mercies. And you guys got trained really well, so I love it, right? Well, now we got to undo that because we're going to switch it up, and we're going to attempt to switch that up a little bit. So here's how I want this year to go. Good morning. It's a good day. It's a good day because this day is Soli Deo Gloria, to which then you will respond for the glory of God alone. So let's practice real quick. Amen. I come up. Good morning. It's a good day. It's a good day because today is Soli Deo Gloria. We got that was awesome. I was expecting 40 weeks before we got that out. That was amazing. So I'm excited. So we're going to say that. That'll be like our mantra, right, for the whole year, just as a reminder, reminder Sunday after Sunday that our entire life as a follower of Jesus needs to be lived solely Deo Gloria. Every moment of every day is for the glory of God alone, alone. So with that, if you have your Bible with you, and I always hope you do, let's open up to 1 Peter, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have the verses on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please stop by the info table and grab one of these because that is our gift to you. We want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word to read throughout the week and study it. Bring it on Sunday and follow along and see it for yourself uh, in God's Word. Um, and so as you're turning there, just to kind of summarize a little bit of where, where we're going this year, we're going to be just shining this big old light on what it means to live soli deo gloria. Like, that, that's going to be the weight of, of the entire calendar year for us. And so we're starting this sermon series entitled Soli Deo Gloria so like to kind of emphasize what this is about. So what I hope to do over the next few weeks and throughout the year is to help explain or teach that we may all learn what does that mean? To live for the glory of God alone. What is that all about? What does it look like? And then, maybe even more importantly, to even understand why. Why should we live for the glory of God? And so I hope that you today, starting today, are even a bit inspired. 
encouraged, like thrilled, excited, like, yeah, that's the kind of life that I want to live. That's the kind of life that I want to be characterized by. I want to go to the grave where everyone who knew me goes, that sucker lives solely Deo Gloria. And like, what does that mean? And then they get to explain it, right? So like, it would just be an amazing thing if that's what we did this year. If we, we grew to have this second nature in us. We just walk around all day, solely Deo Gloria. Like, how amazing, how good would that be? So I, I hope that we become people who approach life the way Bach approached sheet music. You know, he wrote SDG on every page, right? What if we approached every day of our life like that, and we, in our hearts, we inscribed SDG on every day? Every day, before, before we score the first note of the day, before we do anything that day, we say, SDG, for the glory of God alone. Like, that'll change what we say, how we act, our attitude, our behavior, or the decisions we'll make. So I want us to have a Bach way of thinking, soli Dale gloria. And I think 1 Peter 4 at least helps us to get started. Right? So again, today is kind of an intro into this. It's a summary of it. There's going to be a lot that follows in the next few weeks and the whole year to help us to get, understand what this is all about. So 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, it was read a little while ago. It really does describe what the Christian life should look like. It's a description of what the day should look like for a follower of Jesus. The very last verse in those few verses, verse 11, and the last part of verse 11 tells us why we should strive to live that life. And it says right there, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, or through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And right there, it tells us the big why. Why should I live this life? Is so that in everything, God may receive glory. Now, the word glory is a tricky one because I think it's one that we say often and we use often. And it's a lot of our songs that we sing on the Sunday morning. And then if you ask someone, well, what does glory mean? Like most of us kind of, um, it's kind of sort of like glory. Like we use the word to define the word, which you can't do, right? Quite simply, glory refers to honor. Honor. So uh, I'm not in the school system. I'm not a teacher or principal. Uh, some of y'all are. Um, I don't know if this is true these days. This is what we used to do way back in the day. At the end of the school year, we would do class superlatives. And I don't know if they do this now. I really don't know because it might be considered politically incorrect or not in keeping with participation trophy culture. You know, it's not a safe space because what we would do, we would vote and recognize the most and the best. The most athletic because not everyone has the same level of athleticism. There's always the most, most, right? I, I, I meant to look up the certificates that we used to give out back a long time ago. But I'm pretty sure we gave out one for, like, like most attractive. Like, I, I think back then we used to do that. Oh, could you imagine that now? That's, you know, that's crazy. I, I, we used to do, like, best dressed. So way back then, you had to wear the Alexander Julian gear if you wanted to get the best dress 
in class. Or the coveted best all around, which is almost like the decathlon of them all. Like, you're not really good at any one thing, but you're just best all around, which was really the best one to have. But we just spent the end of the year, like a day or two, like voting, like who is the most and who is the best. Glory is the superlative of all superlatives. That's what we talk about when we say that God is glorious, that he is the most, dare I say, the mostest, that he is the bestest, that God is the goodest. God is the goodest good of all possible goods, of all the goods in all of the universe. If you combine all of the goods and put them together, they are not as good as God because he's gooder than all the goods in the universe combined. He's gooder than all of that. He is the goodest good of all possible goods. He is the mostest, bestest, and the bestest, mostest. That's that's who God is. Therefore, he is due all honor. There is no higher status that anyone can have than the one that God himself inhabits. He's the most, the supremest, ultimate, the goodest, glory. And so to glorify God means that we cast our vote and we say, He's the mostest, bestest, and the bestest, mostest. That is what it means to glorify God. To glorify God means that we confess through this declaration in our hearts where we say, God, you are the goodest good of all possible goods, and no other good even comes close. In fact, all other goods are actually bad in comparison. So I will spend my life praising you, and I will honor you. To glorify God means that I submit or yield my life underneath the supreme status of who God is because he's most. So I I submit and I surrender my life to who he is and his magnificence and his resplendence. So why, though? Why should we glorify God other than the fact that he's the mostest, bestest, and the bestest, mostest, and the goodest of all possible goods? Because that's easier said. Well, I want to unpack that. Why should, that's easier said, right? Can anyone else say it? Why should we glorify God? There's two reasons, and they're connected, and they're kind of obvious. One, he's the creator, and by extension, number two, we are the created. He's the creator, we're the created. It says in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So if for no other reason we are to give honor to God simply because he is all powerful creator who created everything that is. So, let's have a little fun. I haven't done this in a long time. I'm going to ask you all to indulge me. Uh, Jesus is watching, so we're safe, and we do have armed security personnel, so we're safe. So, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. You're safe. It's okay. Jesus got our back. Indulge me. Just close your eyes. And what I want you to do with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine Nothing. I want you to imagine what nothing looks like. Like 
consider, like I want you to concentrate and think about what nothing looks like. And so how, with your eyes still closed, with, how would you describe it? Just go ahead and think of the words that you would use to describe nothing, which is what you're thinking about. Now, if you're imagining, still eyes closed, if you're imagining darkness or blackness, let me tell you that you're not imagining nothing. You're imagining something that is dark or black. Because nothing is not dark or black. Nothing is nothing. If you're imagining something that's dark or black, you're imagining something, and something can't be nothing because nothing isn't anything. Nothing is no thing. Everybody follow? You can open your eyes now. My point of that little exercise is that your mind and my mind, we cannot fathom what nothing is. Typically, if you say, well, what does, what's nothing like? You would say, well, nothing is like XYZ. But XYZ can't describe nothing because XYZ is something. And so something can't describe nothing. Because again, nothing is no thing. So the smart aleck in the crowd says, but what about outer space? Outer space is nothing. False. Outer space is something. Outer space is a vacuum. And a vacuum is something. And a vacuum has dimension and, and limits and boundaries and volume. Outer space is, in fact, filled with galaxies and nebulas and quasars and stars and moons and planets and meteors and so on and so on. Cosmic dust, solar winds, it's permeated by gravity. It's held together by gravity. Space is something. The whole point of that is that we can't think of nothing right? It's unfathomable to us. We don't have the categories. We don't have the vocabulary. You don't have the labels because everything that we think of is in light or color, size, volume, etc., right? Temperature. Nothing doesn't fit any of that because nothing doesn't have any of that. And so while it is impossible for us to think about nothing or what nothing looks like, there was a time before time, a time before matter, a time before space, a time before energy, a time before the universe and everything that was in it. There was absolutely nothing with one exception. God. Only God. So very famously, the Bible opens up, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The whole assumption of the Bible starts with there was nothing except for God. And God created the heavens and the earth. So God, standing on nothing, spoke into nothing. Nothing listened, nothing obeyed, and nothing became everything. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 3, tells us that he created everything out of nothing. He created the things that are visible out of things that weren't visible because they didn't exist. And he created it simply by speaking. By, by the word of his mouth, he spoke, let there be, and there was. Who is this God that we're talking about this morning? 
who is this deity that we sing to and sing about and we pray to? How powerful is God that he manufactured the entire universe and all of existence, not out of raw materials that pre-existed, but out of stuff that did not exist, and it came into being simply because he thought of it. Who is this God? In this incredible God of supreme power, invites each and every one of us to live for his glory. To live for his glory. Why wouldn't we? If, if he is that powerful, why would I hesitate for one second to live only for the glory of him? And it's not just that he's all-powerful God. He is kind and loving and generous. I mean, just last week, we had five of our people stand up here and share little testimonies of like the new mercies that they experienced last year. Saying, no, God protected me, or God is with me, or he healed me of this, or he did this in my life. Like, God is a personal, relational God. He's not some cosmic, distant force. He's a father to us, with us, his presence with us. He knows what is best for us. He desires that for us. He loves us dearly. And if there is any doubt, if there's any question about just how much God, in fact, does love us, we simply need to consider the cross of Christ. We look to the cross, Romans 3.23, famously, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us have lived up to God's perfect standard. Not a single one of us. God is the creator. As the creator, he gets to set the rules. He gets to set, this is how you're going to live. This is how you should live. These are my commandments. Do this, don't do that. It is his right and privilege as supreme, all-powerful God who created the universe out of nothing, simply by speaking it. And there's not a single one of us that has kept his standard. Not even close. Not for a day, not a half day, folks, not an hour. I dare say a second at best at one point in our lives, maybe. So we have failed to honor God with our lives. With our heart and our mind, every we have failed. And then scripture says that the consequence of falling short of his perfect standard is what the Bible refers to as eternal death. So there is an eternal punishment, there's an eternal consequence, there is judgment, there is wrath, it is complete and total eternal separation from the goodness, the mercy, the grace, and the light of God forever and ever for falling short of his perfect standard of which none of us have attained. Bad news. But then here comes the gospel, which means good news. But God does not desire punishment for us. He does not desire that we would perish. So he came down himself. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas? God comes down. He takes on flesh. He becomes one of us. He lives among us. And then he goes to a cross. And on that cross, our sin is placed on him. And he paid the penalty. He paid the price. He footed the bill 
for us. And in so doing, those who believe in him, we are spared of the consequence. We're forgiven of our sin. We receive this brand new life. So instead of eternal death, we receive eternal life. That's the gospel. What an amazing thing this is that while we fall short of the glory of God, by grace through faith, we are lifted up to the glory of God. That's the gospel. It is by grace through faith. Like Jesus came, he died on the cross, he went into the grave, and on the third day he rose again. Why? That we may walk in this new life. Abundant, eternal, blessed life. A life in which we now live for the glory of God alone. So this is the God who invites us all to glorify him, to honor him, to submit to him, to yield him, to follow him. He invites us to know him, to know the comforts of his presence, to know the love that he has for us, to like relish and just swim in the ocean of the power that is for us, not against us. So do you know Jesus? Like, have you said yes to the Lord? Have you turned from your sin and then turned to Christ in faith? In other words, have you said, Lord, I'm tired of seeking after my own. I'm tired of seeking the things of the world. I'm tired to just seeking my own sin. I turn from that, and I turn to follow you and to live for your glory alone. Have you said yes to Jesus? Folks, there is no other glory worth living for. There is no other glory. Why would we want to or attempt to live for anything other than the honor and the prestige of a God who is magnificent in power and love for us? So we should glorify God because he's a creator And obviously, number two, because we are the created. So for centuries, philosophers and poets, they've argued and debated and contemplated what is the purpose of man. Why are we here? Why do we exist? And you know what? Those philosophers and poets should have spent their time considering other questions because that question was answered by God himself. Isaiah 43, verse 7, God said he created us for his glory. Boom, mic drop, end of conversation, end of debate, question answered. We exist for the glory of God. Our purpose is the glory of God. And that means several things, but one thing that it means for us is that to be made for the glory of God means that all the fulfillment and satisfaction that our soul desires is found only in the glory of God. It's not possible to have joy or peace so long as we're pursuing other quote-unquote glories. It's not possible to live with any sense of fulfillment in our lives So long as I'm just chasing the world and the things of the world and little sparkly things and a bigger bank account, right? So long as it's just like earthly, vain, sinful vanity, so long as that's what my heart is going after, I will always, always feel out of sorts. I will always that way feel uncomfortable in my own skin. 
Everything feels hollow and vain and empty. Why? Because I wasn't created for those things. I was created to be fulfilled, fulfilled in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only as we live solely Deo Gloria. So, in the minutes that we have remaining, let's unpack a little bit of what that looks like. I'll just give you the whys. What about the what's? So, verse 7 tells us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Those two phrases are synonyms. They mean the same thing. Finkel and Einhorn, Einhorn and Finkel. Like, it's the same thing. Old movie reference. Some of you caught it. (laughs) They're synonyms. Both of those words or phrases, self-controlled and sober-minded, call us to be the opposite of drunk. You know how many people are walking around drunk every day? I mean, drunk out of their mind. It's some of us in this room. Drunk on negative emotions. Drunk on bad thoughts. Folks, that only clouds our judgment, does it not? If I'm, if I'm letting negative emotions and bad thinking just overwhelm me and control me, that's going to cloud my judgment. I'm going to make only bad decisions when I'm controlled by bad emotions or bad thoughts. I'm going to stumble and slur and make, make all sorts of mistakes. So instead of being controlled by negative emotions, we need to have the mind of Christ. Like instead of letting bad thinking, bad thoughts overtake me, I need to take my, my thoughts captive. Then I will have a lucid, clear judgment in life. I will be able to make good decisions. I won't be erratic and unreasonable if I'm self-controlled and sober-minded. I will be disciplined. Is that not better? Is it not better to be disciplined and lucid and clear and thoughtful and know the truth and walk in truth? Is that not better than being controlled by negative emotions and bad thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Folks, we we need to be able to walk the straight line spiritually without stumbling all over the place. So if you are longing for a sense of fulfillment in your heart, joy, or peace in your life, then it requires taking steps and growing as a person who is self-controlled and sober-minded because that person is taking steps toward glorifying the Lord. So it's in glorifying God that we find what it is that we desire and that we want. In verse 8, we're told to love one another earnestly, which is the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness is putting me first. So selfishness is me saying I'm what matters most. What I want is what I want. I don't care what you want. Well, I care so long as it doesn't mess with what I want. But if it messes with what I want, I don't care about what you want because what matters is what I want. That's selfishness. That's the opposite of of love. So we were created to love, which means that we are to put other people first. We're to submit our interests to the interests of another person. That's what love is. 
Love means that, that I'm going to take a personal back seat and say, you know what? What matters most is not what I want. What matters most is what's best for you. That's love. What is best, what I desire is your best. That's love. Anything other than that is selfishness and something else. That's what love is. So if, if my interests and my desires and what I want and my agenda and my perspective and my opinion and all of that is taking a bad back seat to someone else, that means that love is sacrifice. And here's the interesting thing about sacrifice. Sacrifice only feels like sacrifice when we're acting selfishly. The person who, do, who sacrifices and does it out of love it doesn't even feel like sacrifice. It may hurt. It may be tough. Ask a lady who's going through labor. It's a sacrifice to carry the child for nine months, to deliver the child. It hurts. It's tough. I don't know that any woman would consider that moment a sacrifice because she already has this love for the child. Isn't that interesting? Love is sacrifice, and sacrifice never feels like sacrifice so much as we're do- so long as we're doing it out of love. And I don't think we need to miss the fact that verse 8 actually says that we're to love one another earnestly. So the word earnestly there in the original language this was written in, written in means without ceasing. You know what that means? Love don't quit. Love does not throw in the towel. Love does not stop. It is without ceasing. It is unending. It is long-suffering, faithful, and steadfast for richer or poorer through thick and thin. Love has to be earnest if it is love at all. I do think it's interesting that those people who love that way earnestly Like, they don't quit on love. They don't quit on the people around them, right? Those people are the people who are most satisfied and fulfilled in life. The people who give up on the people around them easily and quickly, who give up on love and fighting for the sake of love, it is those people who lack the most joy and the most peace in their heart. And you know why that's the case? Because we were made in the image of God, which means we were were meant to reflect the glory of God. And we reflect the glory of God most when we are loving people selflessly, sacrificially, earnestly. Isn't that what he did for us? Is it not, not how he loves us? So the more we imitate Jesus in love that way, the more we glorify him. And what's the benefit to us? Fulfillment, joy, peace in our hearts. In verse 9, we're told to show hospitality without grumbling. Have me over for dinner. Make sure there's a side of bacon involved and don't fuss about it. I mean that. Actually, I don't care if you fuss. I just want some bacon. (laughs) To show hospitality is the opposite of isolation. So here in the United States, and you've heard me say this a lot, and I think because I think we have to point it out, in the United States, we peddle this weird version of Christianity, which I do not believe is actual biblical Christianity. 
We have privatized the Christian faith and isolated it as if it's just my little thing and my private little thing and you do your private little thing and I'm just going to sit here with my faith, whatever that may look like. Don't mess with me. I won't mess with you. I'm over here by myself. I'm an individual, isolated, alone. It's my faith. And the truth is that real Christian faith is to be personal, right? I mean, I do have an individual faith. But my individual faith is to be shared with others. It's meant to be lived with others. The Christian faith is by definition communal. Not in isolation, but it's a community. It's what the church is. The church, the word actually means a gathering of people. The called out ones. Where we were not a people before, now we are a people. A people of faith. God's people. So it tells us in this verse to practice hospitality, to show hospitality. And I think a lot of us, we, we tend to think of that as, well, I guess i got to invite someone over to the house and cook a meal and be a gracious host. That's maybe part of it, but that's a little tiny little strand of it. You know, hospitality, to show hospitality is way broader than that. It really is just simply a form of love. It means I can, I can show hospitality wherever I'm at. I don't have to be at home cooking dinner for you. Or Jamie, in our house, she would be cooking dinner for you. <laughs> right? Like, it's not that myopic. It's broader. Anywhere I am, I can show hospitality. Because what is hospitality? Is that not just simply being, being gracious? Like instead of being judgmental and condemning, like being thoughtful and caring and nurturing and loving, like is that not real what hospitality is? That, that wherever I'm at, I know that I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that feel disenfranchised in this world. And so I show hospitality that they may know love, that they may sense love, that they may come to know the love that I may have for them or that God has for them. Is that not hospitality? Like it's just being like Jesus all the time is what hospitality is. So how, how can we possibly learn and grow to show hospitality? I got an announcement. A-teams. <laughs> Join one of our small groups. Join one of our small group Bible studies that meets during the week. Ladies groups, co-ed groups. We've got a membership one for those who are curious about what does it mean to be a member of Anthem Church. It's in our 18th where we spend some time together. We get to know each other. We study the Bible together. And we help each other to grow in our capacity to love others we grow in our capacity to show Christian hospitality. It's kind of hard to learn to, to, to show hospitality if I'm not around other people, right? If I'm isolated, I can't even obey the command. So it's in our small groups. It's just a safe way of learning. Hey, how do I become more loving? How do I become more Christ-like? How can I become more thoughtful toward people, more caring? So I will say this, that our membership A-team starts this Wednesday, um, June, January, June, January 8th. Um, if you're not even sure, I don't even know if I want to join the church or I'm not even sure if I should, just come Wednesday. It's just kind of an orientation session in that like formal and official and all academic, right? No, it's just like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what this, the format of this. This is why we do it this way. If you come to it, you don't have to come back to it. No hard feelings. I'll just I'll, I'll make a note of it, but I'll, I won't guilt it against you. 
Oh, I'm kidding. No, honestly, it's just, just come, hang out. This isn't for me. It isn't for me now. That's fine. The rest, the, all of our other 18 start the following week. So our first 18 starts next Sunday. Our youth group starts meeting again next Sunday night. And then they, oh, they start tonight. They didn't tell me. We'll talk later. No, that's fine. So they, they start, but the other adult groups, they meet, they start meeting next week. So just come Wednesday. Not for you, that's fine. And you can join one of the other ones. Cool? Folks, if we're going to grow as a people who live solely Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone, we got to learn how to be more loving and we got to learn how to show hospitality. And there's no way better to do it than through our A-teams. All right, last one. In verse 10, we are told to use the gift we've received and to serve one another well. So the word gift there is referring specifically to a spiritual gift. I don't have time to get into that. We did a Bible study last June that we recorded, and it's on our website, anthem-church.org, under messages, and look up gifts of the Spirit. And all the lessons are on there, so you can listen to it. But for right now, let me this suffice. A spiritual gift is not a talent. A spiritual gift is a unique God-given capacity to do his work in this world it says that use the spiritual gift that you've been given now just know I'm, it's been given to to me but it doesn't belong to me so it's not for me the whole point of the spiritual gifts is to serve others is what the verse is right i need to use it and steward it steward it well for the good of others for the common good of others so if in every follower of jesus every single one who confesses faith in jesus has received a spiritual gift at least one if not more so if i'm not using my gift that means i'm depriving someone and i'm actually depriving the entire church of a blessing that God has in store for the church. So how in the world could I possibly say, I'm living solely Daryl Gloria, if I'm depriving people of the very blessings that God wants to give and distribute through me? So we need to be a people who, what is my gift? How do I use it? How do I get better at it? How do I develop it? How do I exercise it? How can I put it to use for the common good, for the edification of my church and the furtherance of the gospel? So I tell you, if you want fulfillment and joy in your life and peace, use the gift that you've received to serve others. It will bring glory to God and it will bring you precisely what your soul so wants. So we need to approach every day as if it's a blank sheet of music. And before we do anything, before we score the first note of the day, we need to go ahead and decide whether or not we're going to write SDG on our day. Are we going to choose to live for the glory of God alone? And we do that by being self-controlled. We do that by being sober-minded. We do that by loving others earnestly, by showing hospitality, by using the spiritual gifts, and by serving others. And if you look at that list, those few things that we're told in those few verses, it involves our heart, our mind, our soul, our body, our thinking, our speaking, our doing. It involves every aspect of who we are as an individual. It's communal, not private. It's, isn't it a way of life? Like everything described in those verses is, is whole life. 
So, man, like, I got to, how do I glorify God who's that glorious? And I'm supposed to do it all the time and do it. Love others earnestly. I can barely tie my shoes. Like, love others faithfully? And the good thing is that we don't do this on our own strength. Verse 11 actually tells us that we do this because God provides the strength. God empowers us to do the very things that he asks us to do. You having trouble thinking well? Ask God to empower your thinking. You're having trouble loving well? Ask God to, to empower your ability to love others. It's hard to serve and volunteer and give of your time. Ask God to empower the gift that is in you for the good of others. It's God who does it. So Johann Sebastian Bach, he once said, I play the notes as they are written, but it is God who makes the music. In other words, we get up, we do what we got to do. The Lord has told us what to do. He's told us the notes. Hey, be sober-minded, love others earnestly, serve, right? We know the notes. Our role is just simply to play the notes. And if we give ourselves over to that, if we will just submit ourselves, like, I'm going to play the note, I'm going to live for the glory of God, right? What he does, he does that. He takes that which we do, which is just crumbs at the end of the day, right? He takes that and he does something miraculous and amazing with it. He makes us a melody. He turns us into an anthem of the glories of his grace. We just play the notes. He makes the music. So it's the first week of the year, which for so many people means what? New Year's resolutions. The overwhelming majority of New Year's resolutions fail. They don't make it to day three, let alone the end of the month. Researchers, this is interesting. Researchers have discovered one of the main reasons why most people don't stick to their New Year's resolution. This is a little counterintuitive. Are you ready? It's because most people's New Year's resolutions are too small. They're too little. They're too achievable. The kind of New Year's resolutions that actually stick, that people stick to, and that lead to true life change are like the astronomical ones, the next-level stretch kind of goals. So a person says, I'm just going to lose 10 LBs. They may do it, but, it, they, but they're probably going to give up because it's just actually too easy. It's not that big a deal. Or, or the person says, well, I'm just going to like, I got this one credit card that's kind of big, so I'm going to just cut it down by half. Like those goals don't do anything for us. Like you may get those things, but then when, once you've achieved that, then what? What then? It, it hasn't changed you. The kind of goals that matter isn't, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. It's like, no, at 46, I'm going to be in better shape at 46 than I was at 25. And if I ran into me at 25, I would show him up. Like, that kind of goal, it's different. It causes me to think differently. Like, now it's not just like, well, i got to, like, cut a meal a day and cut my calories by 10%. Like, no, now I'm changing stuff up. I'm getting up earlier. I'm working out differently. My whole diet, I'm not thinking of diet. I'm thinking of nutrition. It's whole life. Like, my whole life has to get aimed in a different way, right? Because that goal requires a complete altered state. The same thing with debt. Oh, I'm just going to, you know, cut this debt down by 10%. Like, no, that's like, who cares? Get out of debt, period. Pay off the house. 
Well, that'll change something. Because now I'm not just talking about a credit card. I'm not talking about, like, i got to pay off the car. I'm going to pay off the How do I do that? That changes everything about my budget and my lifestyle. See what I'm saying? So the real New Year's resolutions that really matter are the biggest ones. You'll stick to it, and even if you fall short, think about how much further you went than just 10 pounds. What higher, better, loftier goal is there than I am going to live for the glory of God alone? There is no greater goal. That forces me to change everything about my day. I'm going to think different. I'm going to stop watching some things. I'm going to stop listening to some things. I'm going to start watching some things and start listening to some things. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to be in a Bible study. I'm going to be a committed part of a church. I'm going to use my gifts. Like, this isn't just a Sunday morning activity. No, this is whole life. I'm bringing my family with me. The kids are kicking and screaming. I don't care. They're coming with me. Like, everything changes. And why in the world should we strive to make such a change? Because our all-powerful creator loves us and died for us, that we may have eternal life. We, us little created beings, get to have a seat in glory forever and ever and ever. And I tell you this, if we will commit ourselves to that life, all the joy and peace and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that your soul desires, you will start tasting of it more and more and more and more. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for this first day of the year. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to this point in our lives, every one of us, that you've brought us all here this morning specifically, that we would hear this message. Lord, that we would not play church, that we would not pretend Christianity, Lord, but that we would be wholehearted in our living it thinking it, breathing it, acknowledging that you are the God of all glory, that you are the bestest, mostest, and the mostest, bestest, the goodest of all possible goods. And that to you belongs all glory and all honor and all power and all wisdom. To you belongs all dominion. To you belongs all splendor. For you are powerful and majestic, resplendent. You're shrouded in light, immortal eternal, good and wise, gentle and gracious, merciful, patient, slow to anger. In you is found all that is good. In you there is nothing wrong. There is no darkness. You are holy. You are righteous. You are everything that is right. You are everything that is best. And you, all-powerful God, you invite us to know you, to enjoy your presence to glorify you, which is our right place, that is where we flourish, is in bringing you honor, Lord. And it's not a chore. It's not even an activity, Lord. It is, it is our rightful place where we find our meaning and our purpose. It's where we find life and breath and joy. So, Lord, I thank you that you invite us to know you and to share in your glories. And that you did so, Lord, in the most simple and beautiful of ways by sending your Son. And Jesus, you gave your life that we would have life in you. 
We don't need to be in a pit of despair. We don't need to be on a collision course with eternal death. We can place our faith in you and begin this new life. Soli Deo Gloria. Not my glory, but your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.